What does it mean when someone says, I was just in the right place at the right time? Maybe you've said that. Maybe during the holiday season, you've gone to the mall and the parking lot is crowded with angry people and you turn down one aisle in your car and it just happens the aisle you turn down is where somebody's pulling out. Oh, I was just in the right place at the right time. Maybe you're on vacation and you ran into someone unexpected. I, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas one time. I almost put the picture up here. And I, see, I grew up a child of the 80s, so I grew up watching the A-Team and Dukes of Hazard and all that kinds of stuff. And I was literally standing in downtown Little Rock and Rob Snyder, uh, 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 Rob Snyder, <laughs> wrong person, John Snyder from Dukes of Hazard walked by. I about fell over. And I ran and got to talk to him, and he was there for a movie premiere. I was just in the right place at the right time. Right? I mean, he even let me drive the General Lee. It was great. Just kidding. You can think that, though. But, <laughs> but what does it mean when somebody says the right place at the right time? I think you have, have an understanding of that. Well, we've been, in a, we've been in a series titled Counterculture, where I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. And, and as we go through 1 Corinthians, we've been looking at how to live for Christ in a world that isn't. That's kind of been our, our focus. Because what Paul's doing with the church at Corinth, and if you look at it, between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul, in those two letters, writes more to any one church than anybody else wrote to. And that speaks to how many problems they had. He had to write these two long letters, to, and, and in 1st Corinthians, he just goes from one issue after another. But there was always hope for the church at Corinth because of Christ. And so Paul is pleading with them, and he's correcting them, and and we took a break from 1 Corinthians for Advent and then the new year. And so I thought, well, it's time to jump back at, into 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 11. And, of course, when I opened to study the passage, I thought, oh, man, here we go. Uh, this is one of the hardest passages in all 1 Corinthians. Uh, commentators have so many different things to say about this. It has to do with men having long hair and head coverings for women and angels watching worship. It's all this stuff that you're like, what in the world is going on here? So I thought, well, nothing like jumping back into preaching like 1 Corinthians 11. So here we go. We're going to try to work through 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16 this morning and see what it has to do with us. And understanding that if there is a king who is on the throne, then where I am in my life and what is going on in my life is not out of his control, but he has me in the right place at the right time. That can be difficult depending on what's going on in your life to reconcile. But we'll also see there's great hope in that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, let's begin uh, verse 2, obviously the sermon is titled, Right Place, Right Time. Verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Let's stop there for just a moment. Some of your English translations will begin verse 2 with the word now, some won't. But it's obvious uh, from the Greek and from the subject that Paul is transitioning from one conversation to another. He's been having to deal with one issue after another with the Corinthians. As he transitions into this new issue, he's, he's giving him a pat on the back. He's saying, here's something you did right. Here's something you're doing right. He gives them some praise. 
but then look what he does in verse 3. He gets right to the issue that was on his mind. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, when you come to passages like this today, in today's cultural climate, this has a tendency to send some people through the roof, the verses that we're going to read. But let me, let me just lay this down. This is what's happened. I mean, if you look at just even the history of human nature, it shows just how sinful we are, the things that human beings have done to one another, uh, to different people groups and the way that we've treated one another. And, and that is not uh, devoid of what has happened in the relationship between men and women. And there have definitely and absolutely been times in our history where men have treated women oppressively and as an, an inferior race. I mean, that's just historical. I'm not saying anything that's new or shocking revelation. And, and to treat one group of people, whether it is separated by gender, social class, color of skin, whatever, as if anybody is less than another is wrong. Just period. It's wrong. But what happens, which is, again, human nature, usually if there is an abuse in one direction, the reaction is not just a reaction, it's an overreaction in the other direction, right? To where now you even have a, a feminist Bible where they take all of the masculine gender nouns out and just make everything gender neutral. And so you see this extreme swing in the other direction, which is equally wrong. So many times what you find is the truth is somewhere in the middle. And if we understand a biblical view of manhood and womanhood, which we can't cover all of that today, we're going to touch on it, then we see the value that God places on men and women, and we see the respective roles, and how in those respective roles there's no devaluing of one over the other. There is actually a, a, a lifting up of one Together with the other, there is a unity and there is a value that actually is seen together. And so we're going to explore that a little bit here, but this verse, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, that of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That last part, the head of Christ is God, that keys us into something. Paul is not speaking of value. He's not making a value statement. He is speaking of, of order and the assignment of roles. Because, he says, the head of Christ is who? Is God. Now, in saying that, is Paul saying that Christ is any less than God? No. We know from all of Scripture that as we look at it, we see that Jesus said that the Father is in me and I am in him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We know that in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So we know that Christ is no less than God, but we also know that Christ learned obedience we know that Jesus humbled himself. We know that Jesus only said what he heard the Father saying, only did what he saw the Father doing. And when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, not my will, but what? Yours be done. So Jesus, although he was fully God, understood his role as the Savior and submitted himself to the headship of the Father. Now, understanding that, we apply that back to these roles of men and women and these other roles, realizing it's not speaking of value, of one being worth more than the other. 
That's speaking of roles that God has assigned. And really what Paul is doing, I believe he has Genesis 2 in the background. And and so what I want to do is I want to just cover the background of these verses before we plow ahead with the rest of our passage. So if you have your your Bibles open in 1 Corinthians 11, just flip over to Genesis 2. Maybe keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 11. And and look at Genesis 2, verse 20. Uh, God's created the heavens and the earth, the seas, all that dwells in them. He's bringing the animals to Adam to name. Uh, God has given Adam dominion over the works of, of God's hands. And so part of that is Adam's giving names to them. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, it says, So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and shall become what? One flesh. And so what we find in marriage is God takes of the two and he makes of them one. And the way that the woman is described in relationship to the man is a a helper comparable to him. Now here's what we've done. Because every word has has different connotations, little intricacies. and, And throughout culture and time it can kind of take up different meanings. And what's happened in our modern era is this concept of a helpmate has to some made the woman think of lesser. They associate helpmate with lesser. And that is an incorrect and unbiblical view of womanhood. The fact that God had to create a helpmate actually implies what about Adam? A lack, a need, even before the fall. That God made a man who was perfect before sin. But even in that, even before sin, God made him in such a way that he was incomplete apart from a helpmate. That does not speak of a weakness of women. That speaks of the need of man that he is incomplete apart from his helpmate. Do you see the value there? Do you see how God is bringing those together? Now, some of you may be in a place in your life where you're single. And let me just say this because this is in other parts of Scripture. We can't can't cover all of relationships and biblical manhood and womanhood in one sermon. But if God, if right now you're single, you're in the right place for the right time. That's what God has for you right now. Uh, uh, Ladies, a man is not your savior. Uh, Men, the right woman is not your savior. If you treat a person that way, you will be let down. There is one savior, his name is Jesus. And when we learn his sufficiency, then we're ready to have the helpmate that God has in store for us. Then there are those, and I've known some of them, that have the gift of singleness. And that is something that God calls them to, and that is addressed in Scripture. And some of you may be going, man, I don't know, I may have that gift. I hope not. But I'm going to tell you what, you never go wrong waiting on God. All right? So that being said, God has created the man and the woman a helpmate together. It's not speaking of value It's not putting the woman as as lesser. They are together. They become one flesh. It is a spiritual union. It's a beautiful thing that God does in bringing them together. 
But then sin entered the world. And look over to Genesis 3.16 for just a minute. And you'll see what sin has done to this relationship between men and women within the marriage. Eve, she, she took it and she, she bit, right? And she handed the fruit to Adam and he, he took it and he ate of it and, and they rebelled against God. And sin came into the world. And, and, and as the curse of sin is being decreed by God, look at Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. and pain, you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Let me unpack this for just a minute. Later in Genesis 4, 7, where it says desire, it's where Cain had killed Abel. And God says, why are you upset? If you do, or, or Cain was about to kill Abel. Yeah, I guess in verse 7. And, and God says, Cain, why are you downcast? If you do right, won't you be accepted? Uh, but if you do wrong, sin, its desire is for you, to have you. And, and this concept of desire, there's actually a word picture here. I talked about it on Sunday nights in our Genesis sermon series. It's like a, a man who has a pet tiger, and he keeps his pet tiger. It's a baby. He keeps it on the front uh, step of his porch, and he... He comes in and he goes out from his house and this pet tiger is there. And he thinks he has the tiger tamed. And he thinks he has the, the tiger under his thumb. And he thinks everything's okay. But as the tiger continues to grow, the tiger begins to get a desire for that man that's going back and forth. He begins to see that man as a, a meal. And one day while the man thinks he's safe, he goes by and that tiger's desire is for him and pounces on him and overtakes him. That is the picture of sin, that sin's desire is for you. And if we understand that, we, it informs our understanding of Genesis 3.16 that the desire of woman is for her husband, yet he will rule over you. And here's what sin has done. God has made the marriage to, to be this beautiful partnership in a spiritual union of two becoming one and helping one another, building one another up. But here's what sin does. In the woman, sin's desire unchecked is to overthrow the man. And that's what you see in the modern feminist movement. is trying to overthrow the order that God has established. And then the order in and the sin working out in man is man ruling over his wife instead of seeing her as his companion, his helpmate. A harshness, an authoritarian, a dictator. Versus a loving companion and helpmate. And so we see that the effects of sin, they work themselves out into our relationships, going all the way back from the Garden of Eden till today. Now we understand that God has established the man of the head of the house, but I like the way Tim Keller says it. It says that means that the, that the husband has the tiebreaker when it comes to a vote. It doesn't mean he's the dictator. So God is ordered the home and sin tries to warp that over and over and over again. So with that being said, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Aren't y'all glad I'm back? Just get right to the awkward stuff uh, after being gone for three weeks and just jump right into feminism and oppression and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but it's being dealt in the Bible, so, so we're going to deal with it, right? Uh, verses 2 and 3. As I looked on those, and, and it really, I had more, you know, if you go to Ephesians, 
uh, it, it talks about submitting to one another and, and the husband's responsibility of loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And there's so many places you can go. If you go to Proverbs 31, you know what you see? You do not see a woman who is this meek, mild, oh, I'm dependent on my husband. You see a woman who is baking goods and buying land, and she is out contributing with her family. The, look at Proverbs 31. That's a helpmate. That is a woman who with her husband is caring for their family. And so that is the correct view of Scripture. Okay, we've spent enough time on that. We've got to move on. Verse, uh, the point that I have for you, point one, is this. Everyone is under someone's authority. Christ's rule is a blessing to those who receive it as such. We all have someone that we answer to, and many times it's multiple people that we answer to on any given day. And there's no authority that is established except what God allows. God has you in the right place at the right time. Your life is not a mistake, okay? Even in your sin and as you bear the consequences of sin, God's still in control. Your sin isn't in, in control in the sense that it's overthrown God. God's still in control. And everyone is under someone's authority. And if we will see it as such, Christ's rule is a blessing to understand that, God, you have me where I am at this time. And you love me and you are for me and you're not against me. And so I surrender to your rule. I may not like this circumstance, but in your rule, you have me at the right place at the right time. So you're allowing this. So I choose to praise you in it, and I give you thanks in it. You are my king, and I am under your rule, and that is the best place to be. You know, I think there's probably no more wretched person in this world than a Christian who is in rebellion to the lordship of Jesus. There's probably no more wretched creature than when a Christian is fighting their Savior. So many times we say, well, I just, my Bible isn't coming alive to me, and I don't have a prayer life, and here's what happens. As you put your faith in Christ, God forgives you of your sin, and he fills you with his spirit, and then you have a choice moment by moment to listen to the leading of the spirit, to be obedient to the spirit or not, and if you have been walking in disobedience to the leadership of God's spirit in your life, you will feel like God's quiet because you've tuned him out. And God is waiting for you to come back to him, to listen to him, to again hear his voice with the will to act and to obey. You see, when we are rebelling against Christ's authority in our life, it's like a fish out of water. It doesn't make any sense. It's like a bird that's walking on the land. You're going, what's wrong with you? It's like a, a human that says, I'm going to go live in an active volcano. You go, well, you're crazy. It's that crazy for one who calls himself a Christian to be living in rebellion against Jesus. You see, that's the difference between Saul and David in the Bible. Think about it this way. God rejected Saul as king, right? Remember King Saul? But David got accepted. David was a murderer and an adulterer. What? Why is God rejecting Saul but accepting the murderer? What is going on here? because of this. Saul twice, not once, but twice when he's given direct commands to wait on God, he didn't. And he took matters into his own hands and he was a self-willed individual. But David, 
even though he sinned mightily. I mean, when you talk about doing it wrong, he did it with the best of them, right? But he was also broken before God's Word. That's the difference. He was broken before God, yielded to God, willing to repent, willing to own up, willing to receive from God's hand what God had for him. That's why he's called a man after God's own heart, and that's why Saul was rejected. So, that brings us to the question. Let's apply it. How do we do that? This is all, so far, this is all just out there, right? Well, that sounds good. Yeah, I need to surrender to Christ's rule. I need to do right. don't need to rebel. But how do I do it? Especially if you're struggling with a particular sin or something in your life is just out of whack and you've lost hope. So how, do you, how does this become true of me? There's no real secret to it. Listen very closely. How do you surrender to the rule of Christ in your life if really walk in obedience? I'm not talking about perfection, but obedience. How do you do that? Moment by moment. That's it. There's no secret. Here's the misconception we have. We think that if we have some big religious experience, that life gets easier and suddenly I won't even be tempted to sin anymore and everything's just going to be great for me. Now, are there times when God moves and, and your heart is changed? Yes, I've had those. But go back to this. When you have those moments, <laughs> where does the change take place? It begins in that moment, but where does it really take place? In the moments that follow, in the decisions you make, in the way that you talk, in the places you go, in the way that you treat people, real life change, walking with Jesus, submitting to his lordship, it takes place moment by moment. That's it. There's no big secret to it. And moment by moment, we are either yielding to the Lordship of Christ or we're not. And that moment by moment decision is setting the trajectory of your life. And there are people that are rebelling against God. You know, I've been in ministry for 21 years now. And you know what 21 years gives you? Perspective. And I have seen people get mad at churches and leave because they're not getting the experience they want. And when I've talked to them, here's what I have found. They have a habitual sin that they're hiding. And they are expecting the church to give them an experience that will help them get out of that sin, even though they've been in rebellion against God for years and they're unwilling to come clean, they're unwilling to confess, they're unwilling to make the changes that God's already shown them to make. They're unwilling to humble themselves. They're unwilling to really do what God's called them to do, and they're putting all the responsibility on, no, I just need this experience to make it easy on me. Does God sometimes move in those experiences? Yes, but the fruit is borne out in the moment-by-moment -moment choices that we make. And God's there in the moment. That's why it's possible. The Holy Spirit is there. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you who believe. That's a lot of power that's at work. And he's at work in you moment by moment. We have a lot to cover still. My goodness. All right, let's move on. Verse 4. Uh, this is where it gets really weird, these verses. Uh, verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. What is he talking about? 
Everybody put on your ball caps. Forget what you were told. It's disrespectful to not wear a hat in church, right? What is he talking about? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. Hold on to it, okay? But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same if her head were shaved. Now, Old Testament background, if your head is shaved, it was because something had happened, you'd become unclean, maybe leprosy, or there was some sin, or there was repentance. Having your head shaved, it spoke of something that happened, some event that happened, and there was mourning or sin or repentance, something, okay? Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, for if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, for her to be uh, covered. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I got that reversed. Women, guys, that on this one, you take off your hat, but women, y'all got to all wear hats uh, to church, according to this. So, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Again, we're like, okay, well, what's going on here? He's talking about roles, and, and people get their cackles up. What's he talking about? Well, when it's talking about the head, it is speaking of the head waters, such as the source. And, and that's very easily seen in Genesis that woman was taken from man. But we also know that now where does man come from? From woman. One trick question, right? We don't need to, you know, get into our health and wellness class this morning. But you all understand that, that man comes from woman now. And so again, it's mutual. It's together. But, but look at verse where do we leave off here? Verse 8, for man is not for woman, but woman for man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Again, he's not devaluing, though. He's speaking of, of roles. And he's going to get to that in verse 11. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? What is he talking about? Now, here's where you got to be careful. Don't build a doctrine Go, don't go down crazy street building some doctrine on a difficult verse of Scripture, okay? Well, ladies, you better wear a hat to church or you're going to offend the angels. Well, let's simmer down now, okay? Let's slow down just a little bit here. Uh, what is Paul getting at? What is he talking about? Well, it's hilarious to read the commentators who try to make sense of this. I like to play on the safe side, and what we do know is that to some degree, the angels are watching our worship of God. That is safe to say. Beyond that, I don't know that there's much that I really agree with, at least that I've read. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. See where he comes back to? He comes back to, hey, it's together. It's together. So what's going on with all this weird talk? Here's what's going on. 2,000 years ago, we cannot relate to the cultural norms, okay? You had a Jew, Orthodox Jews, who had a very set way of thinking, a very set lifestyle, that have put their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Everything has changed for them. And they are going to church, so to say, with now maybe a Gentile, a Greek, who they would have never associated with before. And guess what that Greek has? their own set of customs. And they're religious, if you read, like in Josephus and ancient historians, they had different cultural norms. Some that believed you should have your head covered, some that believed you shouldn't. Men, women, these different things. Oh, when you go to this place, you should do this, you should do that. It was their cultural norm. 
and you have two very different cultures that are coming together in the church. And here's what was happening is that a Greek man was maybe looking at a, a Hebrew woman and going, I can't believe they're doing that. They were elevating their traditions and making them as spiritual rules and judging one another. How do I know that? Read the book of 1 Corinthians. They just kept doing it over and over and over and over again. This is just now, whether their head's covered or uncovered and all this, now they're just doing it there. And you go, well, but Paul's making a, a statement on it. He is, but wait till we get to the rest of the, the passage. Paul actually says at the end of the passage, but you know, these are all just customs, so don't let it cause a fight among you. Isn't that interesting? So here's the second point for today is everybody has their portion assigned to them in the Lord, and we can either rejoice in it or not. You see, it is obvious that God has created the, the husband to be head of the home and the woman as a helpmate, and that is not a value statement. Uh, that is something that is together, but if you take that and you even open that up, that all of us, whether it's in your workplace or, or your social life or whatever it is, the place that you're in in your life, you, you have your portion assigned to you by God. And I can say this, with all honesty, I have no body in my mind when I make this statement. I do not bully people from the pulpit, but listen to me. Everybody has their own portion assigned by God. So you know what that means? Quit throwing a pity party. That's what that means. There are a lot of people in life that just need to quit throwing that pity party. Look how hard my life is. Look at everything that's gone wrong with me today. Look at how much harder I have than you. You know what that's doing? That's bringing you down. You think you're getting sympathy from each other, but you're actually making yourself in your mind. You are painting yourself as the victim. That's not how God's made you. Look at the Bible. God has made you more than a conqueror to him who loves us. God is for you, not against you. You're not the victim. And we, we need to quit playing the pity party card and realize that I am where I'm at and there is a loving God who is for me. He's not against me. So what do I do if I don't play the pity party card? You do what the Bible says. You take it seriously. In everything, give what? You know, thanks. You mean in this? Yes. You mean in this? Yes. But you don't know what happened. I don't care. God knows. I mean, I do care. But the Bible says give thanks. And you know what? I would rather by faith give thanks when it makes no sense whatsoever because that's what God told me to do than to sit and go, woe is me. Amen? I would rather say, God, my life is a disaster. And I confess that. And you've told me to give thanks. And so by faith, Faith, I'm going to give thanks because you're faithful and I'm going to look forward to see what you're going to do as my faithful God as I trust you. That's a lot better way to dig yourself out of a hole than to just keep digging, right? You look up and you wait for him to pull you out rather than digging that hole through pity. Everyone has their portion assigned to them in the Lord. We can either rejoice in it or not. It reminds me, and we're almost done. There was a missionary that we, we met, Katie and I, on our trip to Israel, and Sammy Joe. Sammy Joe was a missionary during the Vietnam War. She was there in the DMZ 
uh, between Thailand and Cambodia, if I remember right. And she was a trained physical therapist. So she was going over as a missionary to take soldiers who had lost limbs. This is in her mind. She's thinking, I'm going over with my skill and my expertise and my certifications. And, and these guys that have had a, a leg blown off or they've lost a, an arm, I'm going to help them learn how, how to take these prosthesis and, and, and live their life and, and to adjust. And I'm going to rehab these soldiers. And as I'm rehabbing, I'm going to share Christ with them. And it's going to be this, this amazing ministry to these, these people who are hurting in this war zone. And so she goes over there and she's filled with this expectation and she's offering herself to God and she's got all this skill and she's saying, God, here I am, use me. And guess what assignment she's put on? Lancing boils and dressing open wounds. Nasty. With all of her skill, with all of her technique, with all of her experience, she's doing one of the grossest jobs that you could be assigned there. Uh, God, don't you know that I have all these certifications and this experience, and don't you know how usable I am, God? But what she said that she realized is that God wasn't looking for what she could offer. God was looking for her obedience. That's a big lesson to learn. I think we keep learning it through our lives, personally. God was looking for obedience. You know what happened as she began to rejoice and obey and accept her place and not every story necessarily turns out this way but God did end up using her in a major way there she ended up writing a proposal and got a grant and was able to open up an entirely new facility meeting a need that she saw that wasn't being met and you know where she began to ponder that and see that need and understand that need it was in lancing those boils and bandaging those wounds You see, she had to get to a point to say, Lord, this is the place you have for me, and I can either throw a pity party and invite myself to cry with myself over how hard my life is, or I can give you thanks and see what you have in store for me. And God used her in a mighty way. Let's let's close with verses 12 through 16. For as a woman comes from man, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. Again, Paul is he's not making value statements. He's pulling it all together here. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that a man, if he has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? What? What's he talking about? If you, go, if you go in the Old Testament, you know what a Nazarite vow is? You let your hair grow. That's part of the Nazarite vow. That's what Samson was. Remember how long his hair was? So what in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, continue reading. Some of y'all are looking around going, what men have long hair in here? I had 13-inch long hair when I was a youth pastor in Watauga. No joke. Y'all are like, what? I had hair below my collar and a beard. They said, Jesus is our youth pastor. It's crazy. You got to come to church. So what, what is he talking about here? What's Paul getting at? Well, we'll look at um, verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. You know, in the ancient times, that um, if a married woman was out in public with her hair uncovered, she was known as like a promiscuous woman, like she was on the prowl. Because they believed that long hair was a way that women enticed men. So if you were married and you had your hair down, mm mm mm. 
Was your husband out of town? What's going on? And she had a bad reputation because her hair was down. She was trying to get her a man. And so, again, this is a cultural norm that we just, we do not understand. It's not even on our radar. So look at verse 16. But if anyone seems to be contentious, look, if y'all are getting crazy over this, Paul says, we have no such custom. There you go. Okay? Nor do the churches of God. Here's what Paul has done, and it seems so foreign to us. He's taken their cultural norms that they were elevating to these spiritual principles. He's done his best to give them commands to navigate through it. Right? Okay? So you have to read those verses with that context. Then at the end of it, he says, but, you know, don't fight over it. In other words, he's saying, get along. <laughs> he's saying, don't, don't take your norm and judge somebody else with it. The goal is be serving God and do it together in unity. Amen? We all agree on that? So you don't want to take these verses and make some big systematic theology over this kind of stuff because Paul's addressing some things that we just we don't even understand at this point 2,000 years later. But here's the final point. Let us resolve to use our place, whatever your place is, for the glory of God alone. Do you need purpose in your life? There is a God who has a purpose for you if you will look to him. If you're, if you're in a place in your, your school that you don't like, students, a place with your family that you don't like, is that circumstance bigger than God? No. Is God being mean? No. But if you'll say, God, I resign to use where I'm at at this point in time for your glory. If you'll be serious about that, that's not just preacher talk. I... I'd, I had full-time jobs and careers before I surrendered to ministry. I knew what it was to have a boss I didn't like, to have difficulty in the workplace. But if you will, I remember getting up, I had a 7 to 3.30 shift, and, and getting up in the morning and knowing that the guy was going to go work for I didn't like, and I remember hitting my knees when my alarm clock went off and just begging God, God, give me what I need this day to represent you. I remember starting off the day that way. Lord, I, you know I don't want to do this, but I'm surrendering myself to you. Did I always get that right? No. But I'm saying it's possible you can do it. And why is it possible? Well, it's possible because of Jesus. Katie and I got to go to the Holy Land, and this is a branch from a Zisiphus tree that they believe is what they made the crown of thorns from. Uh, this, this is dry now, so it's not very pliable, but but as it grows on the tree, it's real pliable. You can see how they could wrap it around and make a, a crown of thorns. I'm going to let them zoom in on that. Let me get it where it's not in my face. There we go. And, and you can see that. And, and, and as it grows, these spikes, man, they, they're brutal. Uh, I got pricked when I was just trying to cut off this branch. Now, you can zoom back out. Jesus is the king of the universe. He accepted the place of a crown of thorns. He accepted the place of a servant. He chose to die as a condemned criminal. This is where Christianity gets real. If you are struggling today with the rule of Christ and the place that he has you in this life, you desperately need to look to the cross. Because the king of the universe chose a crown of thorns to die on a cross 
that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might not die in our sins, but that we might have the place, listen, of a child of God. That is why we worship Jesus. That is why we gather to praise Jesus. That is why we have hope, because our Savior has taken our place that we might know His. Isn't that amazing? Would you please stand with me? As we close our service today with the final song, we invite you to this Jesus. We invite you to turn from your way and believe upon Him to be forgiven, to know His goodness, to know His Spirit in your life, to follow Him moment by moment, day by day. If you want to know the victory of God in your life, it begins by faith, by calling out to Him and saying, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a child of God. You took my place that I might know yours. You died for me that I might be with you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's promise to you today. Maybe, man, life's just gotten a good lick or two on you, and you realize, oh, I I slipped into that, that pity party mode. We all can do it. I mean, life gets tough at times, right? Let me let you in on another little secret. Guess what? That's why we have each other, the church, to carry one another's burdens. That's how it should be. So today, may we be here for one another. May we encourage one another. May we pray for one another. May we look to Jesus together. I'm going to pray. I'll be down front. One of our elders will be down front. As the Lord leads, if you just need somebody to pray with you before you leave today, I'd love to do that. If you're ready to put your faith in Christ, I'd love to pray with you about that. Or maybe you realize, hey, my, my obedience today is joining this church. Come down and talk to us. I'm going to pray, and as God leads, you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that by the power of your Spirit, we can obey you. We, we really can walk in obedience to you, not perfection, but obedience day by day. Right? And so, Lord, we trust you to do the work that only you can do, the work that we need done, that we might be found pleasing in your sight. And we'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.